Well, this is, of course, what you've been waiting for. This is uh, part two of the sermon I began several weeks ago. And if you knew how much I cut out between the two of them, you would already be thankful, and I wouldn't need to preach. But in light of that, I'm going to dive right in. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a famous German pastor, teacher, writer from the first half of the 20th century, mostly famous for two things. First is his book titled The Cost of Discipleship, published in 1937, when Bonhoeffer was actually just 31 years old. Um, The book is sort of an extended study of the Sermon on the Mount, in which Bonhoeffer argues um, against what he calls cheap grace in favor of the costly grace of the gospel. He writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So first, he's known for the cost of discipleship. Second, Bonhoeffer is famous for opposing Nazism in Germany. He even returned to Germany after sort of getting out to America in 1939 in order to support the German church and to join the German resistance movement uh, eventually as a spy. He was eventually arrested and imprisoned for two years before being moved to a concentration camp and finally executed by hanging in 1945 just before the Nazi collapse. A couple of things Bonhoeffer is not so well known for are, first, for leading an underground seminary in Germany in opposition to the Nazi-established National Church, and two, for writing several other books, not just The Cost of Discipleship, but several books, uh, including a relatively short examination of the nature of Christian community, written at the same time as Cost of Discipleship, when Bonhoeffer was actually teaching in that underground seminary in uh, Finkenwalde. That book, which I'm recommending to you, is titled, it's not very long, by the way, is titled Life Together. One of Bonhoeffer's main arguments is that the richest blessings of Christian fellowship are not found in moments of rapture and ecstasy but in the divine spiritual reality of sharing life daily with one another. Put in other terms, the normal life of Christians as members of Christ's body and representatives of Christ to one another is miraculous. He writes, Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. And so now here in Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17, as well as in the preceding verses, but especially here, Paul is defining normal Christian fellowship. 
It's not glamorous nor rapturous, but it is real and full of life in Christ. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word from Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've come a long way on our journey through Colossians. It's literally taken years. As ever, we ask you to teach us this morning. May your word find a home in us. As it says, may it dwell in us richly. So now give us an eagerness to hear from you, an eagerness to be challenged, even confronted by your gospel. And may you, according to the same gospel, comfort us, empower us, and build us up towards full maturity. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So as we begin, I'd like to make a few quick observations about these three verses. First, it's hard not to notice the parallelism, especially in verses 15 and 16, but also in verse 17. My outline and the structure of my sermon is an attempt to sort of honor that parallelism. And so you see verse 15 concerns the peace of Christ, 16, the word of Christ, and 17, the name of Christ. Second, it's also interesting that this parallelism extends to other phrases in each verse. Note how each verse has two or three phrases beginning with the preposition in. Less obvious, perhaps, simply because in is such a small word. Paul writes, in your hearts, twice, in one body, in you, in all wisdom, in word and deed, and of course, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is very concerned with where these commands find their application. Thirdly, even though it may not have caught our attention, take a moment to consider how emphatic Paul is that his readers should be thankful. Did you miss it? <laughs> I sure did at first, but after spending this time with the text, I confess I have no excuse. Be thankful, he says, with thankfulness in your hearts, he says, and give thanks, giving thanks to God the Father. Now that I've pointed to it, uh, you can't miss it, of course. I mention these things because I want us to sort of get our bearings as we approach, and because I want to encourage you to look for such things in your own time in the Word. I think of words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs and books as sort of rippling concentric circles of context until they reach the context of the whole of the Bible. As I seek understanding, my interpretation of a passage must be consistent 
in each of those contexts. So when I notice elements like parallelism, for example, it helps me to interpret because I see how the pieces agree and fit together and mirror one another. I would say, for example, that these three verses form a unit. And by looking at them as a group, I can understand the smaller pieces better. While I'm talking about structure, it's worth drawing your attention to another observation. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I'm convinced that there is a bigger unit that began back in verse 2-6. Why? Well, partly because you might remember when I preached uh, on chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, I called it sort of a turning point in the letter from declaration in the first chapter in the beginning of the second to instruction moving onward. And as instructions go, you can't get much more comprehensive than verse 17 today. It's not the final command in the letter, but it has a strong sense of finality to it. If it's not the conclusion of the section, it certainly is a climax of some, time, some kind, I suppose. And so all that to say, it would make sense to me to read these verses today as a grand concluding statement expressing how we are to walk on in Christ just as we have received him. These verses sort of encapsulate all that Paul has said about the way to live out our faith according to the gospel we have received. And so with these things in mind, let's start, as Paul does, with the peace of Christ in the body. Read again verse 15 with me. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Okay, I have questions. First, what is the peace of Christ? It's actually not a common expression in the Bible. Not that I think it's unclear. To start with, whatever thoughts of peace we brought with us when we began reading Colossians, when, when Paul greeted us at the beginning with grace and peace, as he does, let's put out of our minds any thoughts that peace is some sort of abstract sense of calm or ease. And instead, let's let Paul define peace himself. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul names peace as the result of the cross. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul is not promoting a generic peace, but a unique peace, the unique peace of a Christ-centered community, a reconciled community. Peace is a reference to the work of Christ to overcome the alienation and hostility of our minds and to reconcile us to the Father. Peace is big. It's not the peace 
that comes from walking into a room full of people who look, think, and talk like me and feeling like I'm at home. This is the peace that would come from walking into a room full of people from any and every background and culture and still feeling like I'm at home because we share the peace of Christ. The peace that I have is the same peace that Christ has given to the whole diverse body of believers. And Paul has gone to lengths in Colossians and elsewhere to show that the body of Christ is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This peace of Christ is the same peace that invalidates any passing of judgment based on human traditions or rule following or asceticism. This peace is the same peace that means the wrath of God has been removed. It's found in the heart that knows that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us and declared us righteous and made us children of God together. And this is the peace that Paul says should rule in our hearts as we are members of the church. And so, next question. What could Paul mean by letting peace rule? The word rule here is not what would apply to a governor or a king, for that matter, but rather to a judge or to an umpire in a sporting event. In other words, as I see it, the peace of Christ is not dictating, but discerning. We, we could say, let peace be the decisive factor in your relationships. Let the peace of Christ discern what is fair and what is foul. What I mean is that peace is a basis for interpreting and responding to the turns and happenings of your life, especially in relationships. I see a significant key to understanding this in the second half of the statement, to which peace, to peace, indeed you were called in one body. There's an implicit argument here from the greater to the lesser. What I mean is, Paul is saying that if we have peace with God through Christ, if we have the peace of Christ, how can we sustain anything other than peace in the rest of our lives? The greatest possible peace has been achieved. It's already been purchased for us and given to us in Christ. Therefore, our peace with God means that all our relationships are affected, especially in the body. And even if we've been generally unaware uh, of the relational aspect of the virtues in verses 12 through 14, uh, we can't escape it now. Paul is assuming that the believer is part of a gathering of people. In statements like this and commands like this, Paul reveals his conviction, even his assumption, 
that there's no such thing as a member of the kingdom apart from the body. It's easy to see that Paul is describing an ideal that we should seek, but it seems to me now that these verses are not teaching so much about an ideal Christian individual or the character of the Christian life in the individual, but they're primarily, primarily about how the body of Christ must have a culture of Christ-likeness for it to function properly. Notice especially how the peace of Christ here in verse 15 is the result of verses 12 through 14, especially forgiveness in 13 and love in 14. I'll go ahead and read it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So no, Paul is not talking about peace of mind, but he's talking about peace in relationships. The peace that we have been given in Christ, the peace that we have with God, is the peace that should hold sway in our relationships. No small part of that is our willingness and even eagerness to forgive our brothers and sisters. So far from avoiding tension and confrontation, this peace assumes difficulties, even in the best of relationships. But at the same time, it reminds us of the greater difficulties that we brought to our relationship with God and how Christ took them on himself. In all our dealings with other people like ourselves, we should weigh our behaviors and responses with the same scale that accounts for our own reconciliation with God. And this shouldn't be a surprise, right? Paul has been thinking this way all the way through the letter. It's entirely possible. I haven't done the best job of bringing this out in every passage. However, in my defense, the two aspects, the individual and the community, don't have to be at tension with one another, as if they were mutually exclusive. It's not wrong to see passages like this, and in the whole letter, for that matter, from an individualistic perspective. Why? Because the individual is part of the body as a whole. That's not just my way of giving myself an excuse for having emphasized too much the individual, but rather it's an important point in Paul's teaching. Your personal walk as a member of this local body affects me, and my walk affects you. We are responsible to one another, not merely in keeping each other accountable and calling each other out on uh, overt sin, not merely by encouraging one another and celebrating our agreement on doctrinal matters, but in ways that easily fly under the radar of weekly passing through the same building at the same time. 
Just as the peace of Christ is not a superficial sense of calm, the ruling of peace is not merely on the basis of agreement and conformity. This is not peace at all costs. And it's certainly not non-confrontational peace, as tempting as that can be. In short, this is not the peace of what I would call fragile unity. I'd like to talk briefly about this idea of fragile unity because I believe it can really open up our understanding of the significance of peace, this peace, Christ's peace in the body. And so I'd like to make for us a distinction between two kinds of unity, beginning with fragile unity. Fragile unity cannot sustain the tension or the burden of conflict. And so the unity of sort of empty goodwill is inherently conflict-averse. It fears tension because it knows that tension will break the line. So notice, fragile unity in the church cannot sustain ministry because ministry inevitably deals with people, and people cause tension. Do you know who enjoys fragile unity and is content to keep it that way, generally doing everything in their power not to upset the delicate balance? Grandparents. You know what I'm talking about. Your parents, who were models of discipline and resolve, your parents who laughed at you when you suggested that Monday might be a good night to have ice cream after dinner. They laughed at you. Those same parents, when they're given the title grandparents, will go to Publix and buy extra ice cream the favorite flavor of you-know-who, so that their freezer is stocked just in case a grandchild mentions ice cream in passing after eating half of their breakfast. Am I right? That is fragile unity. You see, grandparents struggle with, we might even say they're afraid of, the thought of tension in their relationship with their grandchildren. They will overlook misbehavior and give in to selfishness, even make extra opportunities for selfishness at times, all in the name of keeping peace. That's an especially fragile unity. Now, I hope you grandparents understand that I am exaggerating, I think, <laughs> maybe not, um, for effect and for a little humor. But just in case there are some grandparents out there who take exception to this illustration, though I imagine most grandparents just own it, um, I could make the same illustration to an extent for aunts and uncles, right? I mean, I, for one, am happy to be a fun uncle, that is, a funkle. I don't want to disrupt the peace with nieces and nephews, whether I'm in a literal or a stand-in uncle situation. I don't want to have any strikes against me with, with Eden or, or, I don't know, Thomas, who's not here, or with Titus or with Henry, for that matter. I'm, I'm pretty sure, as a, as a funkle, 
I can remember every time I made a friend's child cry. Even if it was just because I, I made a face. It doesn't matter. It was traumatic. Anyway, the point is not so much that grandparents and funkles are doing something wrong, but that at home, with mom and dad, that sort of fragile unity is not sustainable. Parents who want to lead their children to maturity understand this. A mom or a dad cannot live in fear of breaking the peace. So what's the alternative to fragile unity? I will offer an alternative in the church. You'll have to figure it out at home. What makes for what we could call robust unity? In short, unity based on anything short of shared faith in the person and work of Christ will inevitably prove too fragile. Too fragile to build up one another. Too fragile to build up the body to maturity. Christ is the model peacemaker. He goes where there is no peace. He can go to the darkest of places because he's the light. Robust unity depends on our willingness to face the darkness in each other because we've been called out of darkness ourselves and because we carry the light. Before we move on to verse 16, let me briefly address this final phrase and be thankful. We'll have more to say about thankfulness as we continue, but let me share this much here. Knowing the peace of Christ means seeing the world through the lens of the gospel. And from that perspective, not only can we be thankful, but if our hearts learn to discern our circumstances, and our relationships according to the peace of Christ, we can be thankful at all times. Moving on to verse 16. Paul turns from the peace of Christ to the word of Christ in you. Listen to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Just as with the peace of Christ, Paul seems to have given us something of a definition of this expression, the word of Christ, earlier in the letter. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, the second half. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So I think the word of Christ could also be called the message of Christ, that is, the good news of salvation through Christ and his work on the cross, that word, the gospel, should dwell in you richly. Notice, for instance, how the sense of the word of Christ is the very foundation of the peace of Christ, indicating that the two verses inform one another. Remember, parallelism. Perhaps we can detect an expanding view the word of Christ is a message of peace, yes, but it's easy to see how the word contains the message of peace and not sort of the other way around. But more to the point, 
the message of the gospel should be at home in our lives and in our community. I remember in college, I heard an illustration of what it should mean to receive Christ. The pastor said something like this. When you invite Christ in, you should tell him to make himself at home, and you should mean it, which means you should not be surprised when you come back from making tea and he's rearranged the furniture. Silly, I know, but memorable. The gospel should find in you a dwelling place, and you should be willing to sell all to make room for it. And you shouldn't be surprised when the word of Christ calls you to make changes. Continuing through verse 16, we must internalize the gospel, the word of Christ, in order for it to be the fountain of our teaching and admonishing and even our singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the first way that Paul identifies for us to let the word dwell in us is by teaching and admonishing one another. I've made so much of Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, uh, over the course of this sermon series that I hope you're already there before I mention it. But Colossians 1.28 sounds very similar to this idea. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Proclaiming the gospel by teaching and warning or admonishing. He even mentions wisdom. Yeah, that's a pretty clear cross-reference. I think you could say we've uncovered a theme of the letter. And as is often the case with exhortations like this, teaching and warning are not secondary to letting the word dwell in you, nor is singing for that matter. Rather, Paul is saying that teaching and warning one another is the equivalent of letting the word dwell in the body. It's as if Paul sees this seamless flow between our devotional lives and our gathering together. Let the word dwell in you is somewhat ambiguous. It could mean in your individual life or it could mean in the life of the community. But I think a moment's reflection will bring the inevitable conclusion that if the word doesn't dwell in individuals, then it can't very well dwell in the community. So here we are again. Your devotional life affects me. Your habit of or lack of internalizing the word of Christ in your personal life influences not only you, but everyone you come into contact with, especially in the body. As we seek maturity together, if you bail, I'm telling you, it makes a difference to us. What is more, these verses are intended to express normal Christianity. What is normal for all believers, for the whole church, for the body of Christ. These attitudes and postures and behaviors are not reserved for the spiritual elite. Remember how often Paul has used the word all 
in this letter. And remember how Paul has emphasized that the goal of everyone is maturity, even full maturity. So all are called to teach and warn. But still, there are pastors and teachers, right? Yeah, the teaching ministry of the church should in fact build up the congregation to be able to teach and warn in their own contexts and circles of influence. That's the way it's intended to work. And I hope I play a part in that. I hope my teaching serves to equip you to teach. So it's, it's not that there are those who teach and those who don't. But there are those who teach in order that all can teach. Next, Paul says that the word of Christ dwells in us by our singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As pastor commentator Dick Lucas has said, word should lead to worship and proclamation to praise. Alliteration like a good pastor, right? Or perhaps you're familiar with this quote. Good theology leads to doxology. I guess that's more poetic than pastoral. In other words, our teaching ministry should overflow into our worship ministry. Notice the mixing of the vertical and horizontal relationships in this expression of worship. Your singing is, of course, a conversation between you and God. And you can spend a whole lot of time there, I hope. Especially in the shower or when you're driving alone, right? Um, actually, uh, Pastor A.W. Tozer is known for saying that he couldn't carry a tune, but God must think he's an opera star. Now, judging from Tozer's humility elsewhere, especially concerning his writing skills, I imagine he was a fine singer. But apparently he would like belt out hymns in his study while he was alone. But singing and worship can also have a horizontal conversation, meaning you are singing to other worshipers. You may remember about a year ago when I was leading worship for a period, I invited you to consider how there are two modalities in worship songs, singing to God and singing about God to each other. And different songs seem to take one or the other perspective, though it's not uncommon for worship songs to sort of contain both. In this verse, Paul seems to have both in view as a part of corporate worship. We don't often think of it this way, I don't imagine, but our singing functions as a part of our teaching ministry. Among other things, this means that we take song selection seriously. Whether an old hymn or a contemporary worship song, the words should teach right doctrine, and the musical setting should agree. Again, in Paul's mind, singing and worship is the equivalent of letting the word dwell in you. And I think music makes a beautiful illustration of that. So pause for a moment and consider how you teach and what you teach by your worship. And let me go a step further and ask you to consider whom you teach 
by your worship. Paul is not commanding that we all be good singers. But he is assuming that our knowledge of Christ will overflow, even in singing. To finish the verse, Paul once again mentions thanks, saying, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, thankfulness in worship hardly needs explanation, but allow me to return to this phrase in a moment. So finally, Paul finishes his passage with one of the most comprehensive statements about the Christian life. We've addressed the peace of Christ and the word of Christ, and now we've reached the name of Christ in all things. Here's verse 17. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I believe that what Paul means by in the name of the Lord can be understood best by considering what things he says we're supposed to do in the name of the Lord. So one way of thinking of it is simply, well, everything, of course. But I don't know if that helps us understand what Paul means by doing things in the name of the Lord. So I'd like to think about, in the context of everything, what is distinctive about those things that are in word and deed? Why does Paul insert that phrase? And I think without too much straining, we can easily recognize that words and deeds have to do especially with those things that others can see and hear. Take Verse 16, for example, it dealt especially with doing word-related things, teaching, admonishing, singing. You could say, doing in the name of Christ is the outworking of the indwelling word. Let me say it again. Doing in the name of Christ is the outworking of the indwelling word. What I mean is, Paul is both widening his focus and turning outward. He is concerned here with how the church represents Christ. I should point out that Paul doesn't actually say the name of Christ in this verse, as I did in my outline, but he identifies Christ here as the Lord Jesus, emphasizing, I think, the supremacy of Christ in all things. His kingdom extends to every area of your life, including your thought life, of course. We could argue that your thoughts are part of what you do in word. Your thoughts and desires and intentions, sure. And certainly your internal word falls under the lordship of Christ, yes. But I maintain that Paul seems to have an outward focus here. To walk in the name of the Lord Jesus means to be his representative to all who hear and see you. What I want you to consider most is the privilege and the burden of this verse. Be encouraged. You are Christ's representative. A wonderful privilege. But be terrified. You are Christ's representative. What a burden. Isn't the Christian life like that? 
The more you know the Lord, the more we're in awe of him. And the more we're confronted and humbled. And it would be to despair. And our fears would overcome us. But instead, they're met and overcome by the grace of Christ. We don't want our God to be less in order for this white-hot holiness to be any less glaring. It's because of the awesomeness in his transcendence and also in his eminence, in his loftiness, but also in his intimacy, in his judgment, but also in his mercy. He's both our judge and our savior. Representing him is both a burden and a privilege. Apart from Christ, his peace and his word, this would be a hopeless endeavor. And as I said at the beginning, these three verses function as a group. And so as we consider how we will represent our Lord Jesus to our families, our friends, our coworkers, our world, we should pay special attention to the ruling of peace and the dwelling of the word in us. There's one more thing for us to talk about. Thanksgiving. I almost wanted to make this a message about Thanksgiving, but I realized that Paul's point is that thankfulness is a natural part of the normal Christian life but necessarily as a response to Christ and his, his work, his peace, his message. So do you know the peace of Christ? Be thankful. Do you know the message of Christ? Do you know the gospel? Be thankful. Do you know the privilege and the burden of speaking and walking as a representative of Christ? Be thankful. If I began with our thankfulness, it would be all too easy to detach our gratitude from the peace and from the message. So what can I say? It's obvious that Paul is emphatically, emphatically calling us to thanksgiving. And I can't help but mention that he uses three different forms of the word thanks in three verses. I'll spare you the grammatical details, but in short, thankfulness is what we should be, what we should have, and what we should do. If we claim to know Christ, but are not characterized by thankfulness, we're a walking contradiction. So let me conclude with another quote from Life Together by Bonhoeffer. And he begins with um, himself quoting Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. This is the scripture's praise of life together under the word. But now we can correctly interpret the words in unity and say, when kindred live together through Christ.
For Jesus Christ alone is our unity. He is our peace. We have access to one another, joy in one another, community with one another through Jesus alone. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray, along with Paul, that you would use this gathering to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ, even this local expression, until we all attain, all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Make it so, Lord, by your Spirit, and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.